0: The book of Ruth uh, and Esther are two books that are actually among the 66 named for women. They're the only two. So the book of Esther and the book of Ruth named for women. Uh, Outside of that, you really have uh, 64 other books that have either male names or the Psalms or that kind of thing. And the hero of the book of Esther is a woman named Esther. There is another hero that comes up in the book and his name is Mordecai. Now, Mordecai was the uh, guardian of Esther. And sometimes you guys have heard him called an uncle, but actually he was an older cousin to Esther. And uh, Esther was an orphan child. Uh, The Bible does go on to say within this book that she lost both of her parents. Uh, To my knowledge, we don't have that backstory, but we do know that cousin Mordecai, and the way this worked is that Mordecai's uncle was the father of esther and so uh, mordecai stepped in as a older cousin brought esther into his home and raised her and raised her in the persian empire this book along with the book of daniel is one of uh, just a couple of books that are actually set outside of a context of israel historical israel So when you read uh, other books of the Bible, usually the story is centered in Israel, or namely Jerusalem. But this is one of the books, and this is uh, like the book of Daniel, where Daniel is in Babylonian captivity, but his heart is for Israel, and his heart, his windows are open to pray for Jerusalem. This book is completely set in the Persian Empire. This book never once mentions God God's name is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And the question becomes, well, how could that be? Why would there be a book in the canon of the Bible without the name of God that would actually be one of the 66 books of the Bible? And the lesson is that sometimes even though God's name is not mentioned or he is not clearly articulated by the record of the hero and heroine in our story, yet his fingerprints are seen everywhere. Some people say that the book of Esther is a great lesson of the providential hand of God hidden but always active. And we could probably, you and I could probably relate more to the book of Esther in our time than we could to something like the book of Exodus. Because in the book of Exodus, there's 10 radical plagues. There's the parting of the Red Sea. There's a parting of, you know, the river. There's the glory cloud. and, And we, you know, sometimes shake our heads. How could the Israelites not believe in God? There's the miracle of the manna all through the wilderness wanderings. How can they still doubt and wallow in unbelief? The book of Esther is a group of people who are Jews, but they're outside of their homeland. They're in a foreign land, and really we can relate to that because we are really strangers in exile in many ways on this planet. We're passing through, but we belong to another king and another kingdom. So one commentary I read this week was making a comparison to the story of Fiddler on the Roof and the precarious place that the Jews found themselves as they were in other lands like Russian Jews or uh, Jews in Germany, for example, where you might have a heritage or you might have a religious commitment, but the context in which you found yourself living was battling against that. In fact, when you were in a foreign land as a captive or someone who had been taken off into uh, slavery or maybe your family did and you grew up there, one of the things that you had to try to consistently avoid is being fully assimilated into that culture. And the setting of the book of Esther is a second wave of Israelites, or Jewish people, who did not return to the promised land when Cyrus opened the door for them to go home. And so you could say that Esther and Mordecai come from families of compromise. Although there was a second wave just a few years later of a group of people who did return. There were several waves of returnees to the promised land uh, that attempted to rebuild the temple and then the walls. Uh, One of the the third in our list of returnees that we would name uh, would be Nehemiah. And Nehemiah went with the goal to repair the walls, and he was the cupbearer of a later king of Persia. But under Zerubbabel and under um, the leadership of Ezra, waves of Jewish people were returning to the homeland. But those who didn't go back, you know, you could argue maybe some of them uh, lacked some zeal. Maybe they got comfortable in a foreign land. Maybe they uh, were afraid of the travel. Maybe they had young children. There's a whole host of reasons why we might not answer the call in our generation. But I think all of us who are here tonight realize that we have one life that we can live and we have to decide how we're going to live it. We have to decide if we're going to put everything into our walk with Jesus or not, or just simply exist as a Christian. And I would argue in America today that most professing Christians are simply existing as a Christian. If that's what you want to do, I suppose you can skate by. If you want to play on JV your whole Christian life, you can do it. But I'm looking to play varsity. Amen? And with that comes challenges. With that comes difficult competition. With that comes stretching. With that comes, you're going to play people who are better than you. You're going to be in circumstances that ask for more than you may have ever given before. So I pray that the book of Esther will challenge you, uh, just like there's normal people in the story, somebody like Esther who was really a nobody in the Persian Empire, until God opens a door through what we would call very natural means to have a woman in her generation step up and really be the hand by which God delivers an entire nation and preserves that nation to bear a Messiah who will save us all. So we all have stock in the book of Esther because her faithfulness does impact our own lives. Now when we uh, were winding down on the book of Daniel, I showed you a chapter where we got an inside look at spiritual warfare. And I showed you how this chapter broke down a behind-the-scenes look at what we see in Ephesians 6. That we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And we saw there that Michael is the prince of Israel. And there's a verse, um, just write this down for your notes, because we're just going to just do a little introduction here. Daniel 10.13 and Daniel 10.20 both reference this. Then he said, the angel says to Daniel, do you understand why I came to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. So I'm going forth and behold, the prince of Greece, the next world power is about to come. Nobody fights with me against these forces against, uh, uh, except Michael, the angel says to Daniel, your prince. And there in the book, and you can go back and listen to this on the website in Daniel 10, we got a behind-the-scenes look at spiritual warfare where we saw that there were entities called princes or kings that seemed to have geographic responsibility over world empires that were unfolding in our Bible, like the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece. These spiritual entities, somehow in the ear of the human leader of that empire, had stock even in trying to subvert a message that an angel was bringing from heaven to Daniel to answer Daniel's questions about the future of his people Israel. Everybody with me? So what I'm saying is that even Persia, the empire that we will learn about in this book, had a entity, a spiritual entity connected to it, trying to thwart or subvert prophecy coming to Daniel about the future. Just interesting, isn't it? This is is what we've got. We've got a story behind the story. We've got a spiritual reality behind human events that sometimes we look at and we we think nothing of. For example, uh, can you imagine the news report? Let's say you go home and you turn on the news and you hear, uh, Queen Vashti has been deposed from her position and a new queen will be brought in. And you might watch the news and go, So what? Another scandal in politics? <laughs> Who cares? Uh, another thing for the tabloids and talk shows to talk about? I don't care. Until you realize that Vashti, the queen, being deposed opens the door for Queen Esther to take a spot by which she will deliver the Jewish people and preserve the line from which Messiah will come. So sometimes little things that we think are no big deal, God's providential fingerprints are there. That's why in your life and mine, sometimes we think things are little. Maybe there's a door that closes and another one that opens or something happens and all of a sudden, unexpectedly, we end up over here in this job, this ministry, a new relationship, whatever it may be. And we, we sometimes don't see God's fingerprints immediately until we look back and go, hmm, wow, God actually was working, and though I couldn't see him, and maybe his name wasn't even named in the situation, he was there. So, the book of Esther. We don't know the author of the book of Esther. Some believe the author is Mordecai, cousin Mordecai. Others have suggested Ezra, who was a contemporary of the time, or later, Nehemiah. The author does have detailed knowledge of the Persian customs, etiquette, and history. Plus, he's familiar with the court of Susa and so forth. The date of writing, though debated, uh, is somewhere around the mid-5th century BC. Uh, Scholars say that it can't be any later than about the mid-300s. And so uh, that's the best we got in terms of an author and a date. Uh, you know, some might strongly lean towards Mordecai. Uh, Esther, who is the, the main character of the story along with Mordecai and a few others, her name in Hebrew is actually Hadassah. And that is mentioned in uh, Esther 2 verse 7. Her name means myrtle or the myrtle tree. Her name Esther, um, we don't know the origin of that name. But um, Esther is among a handful of books uh, never quoted in the, uh, or alluded to in the New Testament. And many believe that Esther's name may come from the Persian word for star. Or it may come from the Babylonian uh, love goddess's name, Ishtar. But her actual Hebrew name is Hadassah. Her father was named Abahel. Uh, There's a record of him in Esther 2.7 and 2.15. Again, he is no longer on the scene, and so uh, Mordecai has stepped in. So, um, the king that, uh, I'm going to teach you how to pronounce his name in a moment, is mentioned, the human king is mentioned in his book 175 times. God is never mentioned once. But the ultimate hero of the book of Esther... Is God, and so Esther really, you could say, imbibes the larger story of Scripture. And so here's what one author says: We live in a post-Christian time, where we need to live out our faith in a world where we often cannot see God directly. Thus, we might seem on the surface to be a ra- this might seem uh, Esther to be a rather odd book but it is actually one that invites us, the readers, to reflect on what it is to know God within this kind of world. A world where the miraculous is rare, and yet in which the faithful continue to experience the reality of God's presence. So I mentioned to you that this is not a book where left and right people are turning around and there's a miracle, or there's a clear sign from God, Or you open a chapter and it says, the word of the Lord came to this person. Or the word of the Lord came to this person. Yet God is still working. And tonight, if it has seemed like God has been silent when you've been praying about something or struggling with a situation or wondering, you know, about a direction, God is always at work. Jesus said, my Father is always working. And I am always working. And so the book opens this way. Now, it took place, literally, and it was, in the days, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, if you have an NIV, his name in uh, most of the translations, at least some of them that I am aware of, is Ahasuerus. All right? Now, you probably could listen to studies on the book of Esther, and people are going to pronounce this name in a n- number of different ways. But I'm going to tell you that the name, if you have a New American Standard, for example, and you see A-H-A-S-U-E-R-U-S, is, to my knowledge, pronounced Ahashwarash. Warash. Okay? Now, the Greek rendering, see, that, that name is the Hebrew rendering of a Persian name. So this is where it gets a little difficult. Because you're taking a Persian name and transliterating it into a Hebrew receptor language. So some of you are saying, my Bible does not say that, Pastor Michael. It calls him Xerxes. Anybody got Xerxes in your version? That's because Xerxes is the transliteration from Persia, Persian language, into Greek. And so sometimes there's not an exact science on how to move these names into a receptor language. Because remember, the Bible is written in original languages and then it is recepted into languages that we understand. So we have a Bible written in English. But remember, the original readers of this story were reading in what? Hebrew or Aramaic. And so there are ways that we translate the name, so don't get too confused about it, but the original name was, the original Persian name of this king starts with a K, and it's something like Kishar Yarsha, but it comes into uh, the language before us as Ahashwarash, or if we want to keep it simple, Xerxes. <laughs> he was the Persian king who reigned from 486, to 465 B.C. So about a 21-year reign. Most scholars identify the figure with Xerxes I. He was the son and successor of Darius I, called Hystaspes, And you've heard his name mentioned, for example, in the book of Daniel. So it says, now it took place, or, and it was, in the days... Of this particular king, notice he's mentioned, what, two times in uh, verse 1, that he reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Now, if you've read any backdrop on the story, even an introduction in a study Bible, you'll see that there's some debate about what the provinces are. Are they led by satraps and all this kind of stuff? These 127 provinces were probably smaller metropolitan regions that encompassed a city. The number does represent the grand scope of Persia's power. In fact, scholars say that at this time in world history, this is the biggest kingdom ever known to man. In terms of the geography that it controls, the scope of its power, it's the biggest to this point. It's a grand scope. And so this would, uh, in the larger story, if you've ever read the story before, that this tells you about the scope of the decree. When the decree is written to annihilate the Jewish people, every man, woman, and child, the scope uh, laid out in verse 1 tells you that no matter where you would run off to as a Jew, you couldn't hide because Persia's power was everywhere, so the decree would go to all 127 provinces where you might try to escape. And that is resonating with some of you who have watched uh, movies like The Sound of Music and Fiddler on the Roof and other stories where it talks about the plights of the Jews trying to escape persecution and wondering where they could go and who they could trust. This story lies within a context of continual world history from Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia or Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and up through the A.D.s of the Jews constantly being under threat of annihilation and persecution. So, the book of Esther, while we could say it is a book about leadership, it is also a book about survival. And the Jewish people have gone through times, decades, and even centuries where they've known nothing but persecution. Nothing but trying to survive. And the backdrop of the book of Esther is actually one that may surprise you a little bit in this sense. It is filled with humor. And you might say, well, how could a story like this where Haman's plotting the annihilation of an entire race with everything at stake with the coming Messiah and so forth be set in a context of humor and even satire? Because you all know that a merry heart is what? It's good medicine, Proverbs 17, 22. So sometimes in a day, we can watch w- news reports and we can watch some satire that's written about politics, for example. And sometimes we have to see the people in power and just, we're either going to cry or we're going to laugh. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes in the same day, you feel like you could cry and laugh a number of different times. But have you ever been there before? Have you ever watched 20 minutes of the news, the debates in our contemporary culture, the talking heads, the figures that represent the parties, and so forth, and just went, are you kidding me? Are you? And that's sometimes literally what I say to my television, expecting a possible response. Like if the TV would say, Not kidding. This is. (laughs) I got to show this stuff. I'm a box sending a signal. What am I gonna do? You know. But that's how you feel. So sometimes satirists in a culture would make fun of uh, people in power as a way of lightening the mood of a culture. And the Book of Esther is certainly a book that does do that. This king that we've mentioned, Ahasuerus ascended the throne on November, in November of 486 B.C. He was 32 years old when he began his reign. So he, re- he ascended the, the uh, Persian throne, and he was in conflict with the Greeks, uh, fighting them on their western frontier. Uh, one writer says Xerxes' father Darius had been defeated in his attempt to take Athens, Greece, and the empire was resting in, in this setting of chapter 1, in preparation for its next campaign against the Greeks. So a backdrop to this big banquet that uh, King Xerxes or his other name is throwing is a setting that it's possible that he's trying to give his army and leaders some rest and get ready for the next military campaign against a rising world power that is the Grecian Empire. And by the way, when I mention these things, I'm actually giving you world history. So I'm telling you how world empires unfolded in concert with the Bible. Just a side note, India to Ethiopia is India to Kush in the NIV. In modern terms, roughly southern Pakistan to northern Sudan was the area ruled by the Persian Empire at this time. And as I mentioned, the greatest empire ever known. The MacArthur Study Bible mentions that Ethiopia, not Asia Minor, is mentioned as representing the western edge of the kingdom probably to avoid reminders of the king's defeat to the Greeks, which happened in 481 to 479 B.C. The name of the king, interestingly enough, uh, the meaning in Hebrew, according to Rade, the way the name is spelled would make it sound som- something like King Headache. <laughs> and I'm literal when I'm saying that, To its Hebrew Aramaic-speaking audience, Rade argues that it's possible that King Ahasuerus, his actual name could be pronounced in their native tongue, Hebrew Aramaic, as Hedek. And they find in there the mention of his name three times in the first couple verses, some of the opening satire of the book. Because to quote Pete Puma in the Bugs Bunny exchange. How many of you remember uh, Pete Puma? This is going to date some of us, but it's okay. Roll with it. Pete Puma would be out hunting rabbits, and he would meet Bugs Bunny, and Bugs Bunny was always clever. And so, you know, Pete Puma would be trying to eat the bunny, and and Bugs would say something like this. Oh, hold on. Hold on, Doc. Let's stop and have a cup of tea. Uh, How many lumps do you want? And Pete Puma would say, uh, three or four. And then Bugs would take out that mallet and go on his head. And he'd have all kind of bumps coming out of his head. And so in a later meeting that they have, Bugs says, you know, once again, he uses this strategy. He says, hey, let's have a cup of tea. And Pete Puma says, I don't like tea. It gives me a headache. And then Bug says, well, then how about some coffee? Okay. He's always got lipstick on. Do you guys remember Pete Puma? Yeah. E- 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 <laughs> That's kind of a noise that he made. Anyway, I'm sorry, but cartoon characters just intrigue me. So how about some coffee? Sure. How many lumps do you want? Ooh, three or four. <laughs> All right. I did that. Only for illustration purposes, <laughs> but can you imagine? Here you are, a Hebrew reader of this story, and you read about King Headache three times in the first two verses, right? Man, I just gotta kiss you. How many of you have this pose in your life? Somebody, somebody who loves you says, "What's wrong? What's wrong, dear? Oh, I, I got, I got a headache." That person, that situation—it give me a headache. Yeah, okay. Anyway, (laughs) so in those days, King Headache sat on his royal throne. You could imagine the the actual wider context is uh, here's a guy who who gets convinced to annihilate the whole Jewish people. You know, that would wouldn't that give you a headache? You know, you think that you have stress in your life until you hear that an edict's been signed by the Persian king that cannot be revoked, that your people, let's just take your race, whatever your race is tonight. For me, it's Italian. All Italians in the land of Persia will be annihilated. Would you have a headache? Would you be going, what in the world? Why, why would this edict be signed? Well, Haman hates Mordecai, that's why. But there's a deeper picture of an ancient battle between Amalekites and Jews that will be actually even behind that, and even further is a spiritual battle between Satan and God or the kingdom of light. So the Jewish audience, in effect, could read the satire or the comedy in the opening verses. Three times at the outset of the story, they can see the satire. And it may seem inappropriate, maybe to some, but in troubled times like this, or even the times that we live in, sometimes we just have to laugh. A couple of psalms. Psalm 2-4 says of the Lord, He sits in the heavens and laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And here it's talking about people who say, we're going to tear off the fetters of God. We're going to do things our own way. And Psalm 37, 12, and 13 says these words. Psalm 37, 12, and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous, gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees his day is coming. And so all of us, when we find ourselves in a precarious spot, a tough culture, a difficult situation, Christian persecution. We look at the Middle East, we look at our own government, you name it, and we shake our heads and we have a headache. We can see that God is writing the story and he's going to write the end of the story and God and the believing community will have the last laugh. We will because we're going to be in the presence of our Lord forever. And even though weeping may last for a night, joy comes in the morning. And some of you have been in seasons where it seems like your tears have been your food day and night when you say to yourself, where's God? Where, where is God in this? And the response, why so downcast, oh my soul? Put your hope in God. And sometimes we have to do some self-talk, right? Sometimes we have to just go back to scripture. If you don't have a scripture plan in your times of question and depression, and look, we all fight you know, levels of feeling down and, and you know, uh, things that we, we deal with, we've got to go to the source of spiritual healing. Now, in the third year of this king's reign, verse three, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of his provinces being in his presence. He displayed, the king did, the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days. In fact, the party lasted 180 days. Wasn't there a Story 180 Days Around the World. This was 180 days around the dinner table. <laughs> uh-huh. A six-month party? Are you kidding me? I have some relatives that can't stay at a party for 60 minutes. We're going, we're gonna go. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, we're gonna go feed our animals. We gotta feed them before you, what are they gotta eat every hour? <laughs> you just don't like us. Isn't that right? Well. You want to know the truth? The truth shall set you free. Maybe not. (laughs) And not in this sense. The third year of his reign is 483 B.C. King Ahasuerus displayed his royal glory for all to see. But as we've mentioned, there's a hidden power, more powerful than the king's royal glory. There's a king of kings, and a Lord of lords, and in fact, I will tell you that his power and fingerprints are actually everywhere if you'll just look, because the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands, day after day they pour forth speech, night after night they display knowledge. You can look at Psalm 19, 1 through 4, and then Romans 1, 19 and 20, tells us that man is without excuse, because God's invisible attributes are clearly seen by what has been made. Man is inexcusable just by the physical creation alone. So even though we could say, well, in one sense, God is hidden in the book of Esther, he is clearly seen. And so we will see some more satire uh, as the king will make an edict and he will be, you know, undermined by his wife. And one one writer says, uh, the ruling class of Persia is depicted not so much as the magnificent seven, but more like Ahasuerus and the seven dwarfs, close quote. But in the backdrop uh, of all this royal display of uh, glory, qu- quickly we'll move to the forefront, God's people in Persia and God's plan. So uh, here's what's happening now. When these days were completed, he, he gave this six-month-long party, the king verse 5, gave a banquet lasting seven days. So an additional banquet. Of course, the six-month party apparently wasn't long enough. For all the people who were present in Susa, the capital, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the king, of the garden of the king's palace. So the, uh, the garden there of the king's palace has the idea of paradise. In fact, I think, the word paradise actually comes from a Persian word that literally means to walk in the king's garden. And so when Paul says, I was caught up to paradise, when Jesus looks to the thief on the cross and says, Today, most assuredly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. It has this idea, this, this at least hint of meaning of walking in the king's garden. and comes from a Persian idea. So the king gives this banquet. It's in Susa, the capital. There were four capitals, but this was the administrative capital of the uh, Persian Empire. He gave it for the greatest uh, to the least, and there in the court garden of the king's palace. Notice the uh, excess. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold, And silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry and marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. And so, this second party lasting seven days, right there in the court, with typically extensive gardens surrounding the uh, capital there and the palace. This was the winter palace of the king. The king, you could say, knew how to throw a party. In fact, people were sitting on and walking upon things that most of us would lock up in a safe behind maybe a couple of walled steel doors. But he had people walking on mother of pearl and marble and he had linen and white and purple. And these descriptions in the Bible, really the only other place you find them are descriptions of the actual temple of God, the tabernacle and then later the temple in Jerusalem. Linen and incredible materials and gold and so forth. But we are in the court of the Persian king. And so couches of gold, silver, mosaic pavement, costly materials, marble, mother of pearl, everything. No expense was spared. And there the people were parting it up. Drinks were served in golden vessels, verse 7, of various kinds. The royal wine was plentiful. According to the king's bounty, the wine was flowing. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion. You weren't forced. For So the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. So each person could do whatever they want. The king's bounty flowed. People had these cups in their hands. They had all the highest fashion. It would be reminiscent of sometimes Have you ever... uh, tuned into one of those shows where they show somebody's home and you're like, no way. (laughs) And they got this room and, and one of their rooms in their house is bigger than your whole house. And there's the hangings and the marble and the gold and the goblets and the service. And just for a second you go, whoa, it would be nice just to take a bubble bath in that tub. I don't have a tub. I got a bird bath for the birds, right? And we find ourselves, and, and we think, oh, that, that's where it's at. And sometimes you watch these big royal weddings or uh, Hollywood weddings, and, and no expense is spared, and, and you find out what the bill was for you know, a couple-hour event, and you're like, oh, my goodness, that's what I make in a year. For some of us, that's what I make in five years. And they spent that. Couldn't they give me some of that money? Were there any Christians there that tithe? <laughs> Do they live anywhere close to the church? <laughs> Excess. But people were told, hey, just enjoy. Do whatever you want. Now, Queen Vashti, a new character, all we've really heard about is the king so far, Second major character, Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace, maybe for the leaders, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So, uh, again, a reiteration that he's in charge. Queen Vashti, the Greek literature records her name as Amestris, and this is what we find in extra-biblical sources. Uh, It has been argued that Vashti is the transliteration of her Persian name into Hebrew. She gave birth to Artaxerxes, the third son of the king, who later succeeded his father. And uh, she's holding a banquet for the women. This was not typical, that they would separate men and women. I'm not sure exactly why uh, this was going on, but she was having her own thing. And on the seventh day, so at the end of the seven-day party, uh, concluding day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, verse 10, he commanded Mahometh, Bistha, Harbona, Biktha, Abagatha, Zathar, Carcass, the seven eunuchs who, were, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. So the king may have been sipping on wine for a week. Seven day party, right? And finally he's there with his buddy and the buddies and the implication is he's with his leaders. This is kind of a smaller party now. The queen's been having her own thing and he says, hey, I got an idea. You seven eunuchs, come over here. Go get the queen. Tell her to look pretty and put on her royal crown. Some of the rabbis believed that he was calling her to come to them scantily dressed if the rabbis even said, if nothing at all. That's reading more into it. But there is evidence that what he was asking for was basically for her to come in to be his trophy wife. To be another possession among all the glory that he had been displaying for six months plus seven days. Now he wanted to bring in his trophy wife and say, hey, hey, guys, they've all got wine in them. Take a look at this lady that I've got. And we all know that too much alcohol and decisions that people make are typically a bad combination. Do you know that there's evidence in literature that actually the Persians would make policy while drinking, sometimes to excess? They would make state and empire policy tipping back some drinks. And some of us may be shocked, but you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some policy in our own country has been made in that same context. Some believe that the uh, seven were called here to bring the queen in her royal litter, to literally carry her into the room. We don't know for sure, but the emphasis is on her beauty. He wants to display her beauty before everyone. And what did Queen Vashti do? She refused. How many of you have seen the Veggie Tales version of the book of Esther? In the, that version, she refused to make the king a sandwich. That's how. <laughs> I want a bologna sandwich and I want it now. Now! All right, you're out of here. In the real story whatever he was asking of her to pull her away from her friends, to show her off before his drunken buddies, he said no. She said no. Now to me, this tells me something about the character of this king and his, and I'm going to put this in quotes, his love for his wife. Because no man who loves his wife would ever ask this of her. So does he love her? Or is this a power play? Or is he trying to impress his friends? You know, sometimes when we get uh, people who abuse alcohol, they do things that they wouldn't normally do. Don't know all the details, but she refuses to come to the king at his command, delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, end of 12. His wrath burned within him. It was a crushing blow to his ego and his pride. Just a a note that being merry with wine is mentioned a couple other places in the Bible. The references are Nabal's story in 1 Samuel 25, 36, and Amnon in 2 Samuel 13, 28. Let me just say, in both cases, it ends really, really bad. Now, I'm going to reiterate something that I think should be painfully obvious. Christians, are instructed never to be intoxicated with alcohol. There is absolutely no excuse. I don't care what one you're going to try to bring. You are not to be drunk with wine. It's not just Ephesians 5.18 that says it. There's 1 Corinthians passages and other places that talk about drunkards and so forth. Not inheriting the kingdom of heaven. You are not to be under the influence of alcohol. Now, I have been one that stood at this pulpit and said, Look, you have freedom in Christ to partake if you can keep it under control and if you can do it within the right setting and context. That's between you and the Lord. But the command not to be drunk with wine is non-negotiable. Clear? I hope so. And I would question if this is something that you feel that you need, quotes, then you may want to take another look at your walk with Jesus Christ. If you need alcohol or some other substance just to function or operate, you may want to take another look at your connection with the Holy Spirit. Let's be real. We live in a world today where this is now commonplace where it's all about my rights to do what I want, but look, you've got to ask some deeper questions as a Christian. It's true, you're free in Jesus Christ, but it is not true that you are free to sin or to break his commands. Well, she was being treated just as another possession. One more object of the king's prestige. I'm going to get on another rant for a moment, but here it is. Women in our culture, the sex industry, um, has now made a mockery of what God intended for male-female relationships. I was doing some premarital with with a couple, and we were talking about the origin of marriage, and I took them back to the book of Genesis, and there uh, God, um, he creates Adam, he places him in the garden before the fall, he tells him to cultivate it and keep it, Adam names the animals, He's given responsibility by God, but there's not a helper suitable for him. And the Hebrew literally means an ally, a partner to complete him. So God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And God takes one of his ribs. Of course, the couple asked, does that mean that men have one less rib than women? Nope, that's not what it means. But anyway, he was in a deep sleep, kind of a a sleep as though you were going under for an operation, and God uh, performs a divine operation. He takes one of Adam's ribs, And he closes up the flesh at that place. And from the rib, he creates a woman. The first recorded words by a human being in the book of Genesis are these words. Whoa, man. (laughs) It's true. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me. Do you know that from Genesis 2... All the way to Revelation, there's a story of a marriage, sacred, ordained by God, a covenant. God brought the woman to the man. God is the first father of the bride. He walks her down the aisle to Adam, and then Adam says, oh yeah, she's someone who fits me. I've been naming all these animals, monkeys and bulls and flies, and they're they're interesting and all, but... Doesn't seem like there's anybody suitable for me. But she? God walks her down the aisle. The first father of the bride. And he says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother. Adam had no father and mother to leave. This is human. This is instituted as an institution from God. Marriage is from God. He shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, marriage is from God. When those two come together in covenant in a sexual union, I'm looking at an adult audience, aren't I? The woman bleeds. Do you know what that's a sign of? A covenant. Covenants are ratified in blood. We have taken what God intended to be sacred, And we have cheapened it and distorted it. Sometimes I'm in my office with a couple or I'm at an altar with a couple and I start to get into these things and I can just feel the room like go, wow. When's the last time you heard something like that? Sacredness and things that originate from God Almighty and mystical unions between male and female that go much deeper than some physical act for your pleasure to swipe right on a person or have a one-night stand or whatever the latest lingo may be. You with me, folks? This is where we are. Man's downfall is pride. The king couldn't take it. What he was trying to convey was blown up in a microsecond by his own wife. He's trying to display his power and glory. Do you see the satire and irony? And he can't even get his wife to make him a sandwich. <laughs> Grilled cheese, anything? Peanut butter and jelly? No. You see his buddies in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> then the king looks oh, quite quiet. cut your head off in a second. <laughs> Do you see the satire? What she 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 won't, did? Did you hear that she won't come? <laughs> you can see why the king's so upset. So the king said to the wise men, <laughs> you could see them. They almost bop into the room like the three Stooges. <laughs> what do you want, king? Well, the wise men who understood the times—that's actually possibly a astrological term, like divination, reading the stars, etc. Uh, who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew the law and justice. So he calls in the experts, the ones who were close to him, there's the names of those guys right there, ending with a dude named Mamukan. that's one of my favorite new names, <laughs> Mamukan. What's up, Mamouk? <laughs> These were the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence, and sat in the in the first place in the kingdom. According to the law, here's the question. What is to be done to Queen Vashti because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? What should we do now? Somebody pulls out a rule book. Can you imagine this? Hold on. uh, I think it's under page 77 under uh, Article 3C. If the queen refuses to make the king a bologna sandwich... The possible options for ki- said king are. <laughs> what? I don't think there was any rule per se, but on a serious note, if you didn't come when summoned by the king, I would imagine that was on the books, right? King calls you into the royal chamber and you don't come. I'm sure there's something to pay for that. So here's the question. Now get, get the irony. They've had a marital spat. <laughs> Okay, she she didn't want to come. But he's made it into a federal case now. They're getting law books out and everything. How many of you have had a marital spat that you turned into a federal case? Oh, every hand in the room should be up for those of you who are married. Have you ever come to the end of an argument with your spouse and said, and by the way, (laughs) how did we get here? You both go, wasn't it about the peanut butter... You ate the last piece of the potato bread, didn't you? (laughs) I had that muffin hidden. (laughs) I haven't wrote my name on it. What is it? What do you mean? What is it, the end of the empire? Federal case? Let's get the law books out. So, (laughs) Mamukin may have been, (laughs) I told you there was humor here. So Mamukin may be the senior guy. He's mentioned last in the list. So he says, uh, 16, we have to hurry. (laughs) Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the province of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct, it's almost like he stood on a pedestal, will become known to all the women causing them to look with contempt on their husbands and refuse to make them a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. (laughs) Furthermore, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. And this day, the ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's despicable conduct, I added despicable will speak in the same way to all the king's princes. And there will be contempt and anger aplenty. That's the Michael Lance translation there. <laughs> Can you imagine what's going to happen now? Now, get this. Had they just kept the thing quiet within their own ranks, then it wouldn't have been that big of a deal. A few buddies laugh and you get over it, right? But now, it's everywhere. In fact... They're going to come up with a statewide policy based upon Queen Vashti's just say no policy. (laughs) I can see what's going to happen here, says (laughs) Mamookin, They're going to start printing bumper stickers, just say no. Vashti did it. You can do it too. It'll be a whole women's lib movement. It's disaster for the entire 127 provinces. uh... (laughs) Can you see some of the advisors with their nightcaps on? Hmm, (laughs) yeah, yeah, Mamookin, yeah, yeah, Mamook, this is a great idea. Let's write some policy, because we haven't had enough to drink tonight. One writer says, talk about a straw woman. You guys have heard of a straw man argument? This is a straw woman argument. They have made this such an incredible tragedy that the king is going to be ridiculed now all over his kingdom because now everybody will know what his wife did to him. And the king, with all the power and splendor and majesty he tried to show off, is there at his royal throne going, yeah, this sounds like a great idea. Yeah, broadcast it everywhere. Good. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him and let it be written in the laws of the Persia and Media so that it cannot be repealed. That Vashti should come no more into the presence of the king, of King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her a royal position to to another who is more worthy than she. She's out of here. She's got to go. Jewish tradition says that she was not only deposed, but executed. And when the king's edict 20 which he uh, shall make as heard throughout all his kingdom. The great advisors continue. Great as it is, then all women will give honor, NIV, respect their husbands, great and small. As soon as this letter is dropped off by the United Persian Parcel Service overnight and arrives on the doorstep and Couples, open it together and read the king's edict. From now on, all women shall respect their husbands. That should do it, right? Right? No? Like like if a royal command came to your house and you were disrespecting someone in your life and it said on a piece of paper that you should now furthermore respect them always and forever, that wouldn't do it for you? You mean ironically or seriously? If a man has to command a woman to respect him, whatever respect in quotes was there has now lost its meaning. If you have to command people to give you respect, may I submit to you? You probably are not going to get it. You may get feigned obedience. You, you may get people who line up and shake their heads when you bark your orders, but they don't respect you. Gentlemen, since guys are being addressed here, respect is earned. Now, it doesn't mean that it shouldn't be given, but you understand. And so this word, <laughs> please the king, Yeah, this is a great idea. Let's get it out there overnight. The princes. The king did as Mamukin proposed. And so he sent letters to all the king's provinces, because this was urgent, to each province according to its script. It was a multilingual kingdom with all these nations that had been conquered. And to every people according to their language. That every man should be the master in his own house, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. So here's here's what came out of the banquet. (laughs) All right, well, we we got a lot done today, don't you think? Yeah, it was a good day. Yeah, that taught her a lesson, right? Probably. Everything they did backfired on them. It would seem, as we wrap up, and Shane, I'm going to invite you to come up, that the entire resources of an empire went to setting send FedEx overnight to something that would never work. They would have been better off having just buried this. And we often would be as well. Some things we just need to say, uh, love covers a multitude. You see... Here's an application for us. I'm going to read some of my notes, and I'm just going to ask you to just meditate on this. The world that seems so extravagant, powerful, and prestigious is made up of hollow, lost, prideful, and often unwise people. And that's the leaders. We have to laugh, but we also have to hope. You see, a supreme all-wise power does exist. When Jesus came, he didn't show up, show off, He wasn't born in a palace, but in a stable. His call to follow is not compelled, but it is a call to follow that which is truly rich, full, lasting, transcendent. Are you trying to find your meaning back in Persia? In the parties, the parades, the fashion, the excess, the drunkenness? It's easy to get enamored by the glitz and glamour. The homes, the money, could seem so attractive, but for most of the folks that we see, that's all they've got. You see, true value lies in a completely different empire or kingdom. You might be asking, where is God in this chapter? He's there working, hidden but real, alive, divine providence. One queen leaves so that God's queen can come. God uses very normal human circumstances. As I mentioned earlier, The people might hear the news and say, who cares, but Queen Esther is coming. And finally, a messianic banquet is coming. The theme of a messianic banquet provides another point of comparison and contrast with these two kingdoms. The Lord, too, has prepared a sumptuous banquet for his people on the last day. But when God summons his bride, the church, to his banquet, he doesn't do so to expose her to shame but to lavish grace and love. To show her mercy. He doesn't force sinners unwillingly to his feast, but gently woos them and draws them to himself. Like Vashti in this contrasting picture, we could refuse the king. But when Jesus, our king, calls us, it's not to shame us, but to forgive us. It's not to expose us, but to clothe us in his righteousness. It's not to make fun of us, but it's to express his love and cleansing power in our lives. That's our God. That's our King. He comes humbly. Often we don't see it, but he's working. Do you know him?